Welcome to Hypnotic History, the podcast where we explore topics related to everyday life in 20th century America, and probably mispronounce a bunch of names. Speaking of names, I'm Ashley. And I'm Logan. And today we're continuing last week's talk about coffee. Before we start, I want to correct a detail in Coffee Part 1. In Coffee Part 1, I said Luigi Bezzera invented the espresso machine in 1901, although the truth is that Angelo Moriando patented the first espresso machine in 1884. It was perfected later by Bezzera, and that was the version of the espresso machine that became popular. Speaking of which... Can you guess when the first espresso machine to use a motor pump was invented? Ooh, motor pump. Uh, let's see. Uh, 1897. Whoa. <laughs> it was 1961. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, before that, uh, to get the pressure, the pressure was more manual. Okay. Yeah. But this was the first one that had a motor pump. What about the electric drip coffee machine? Oh, I'm wanting to. So I associate that with Joe DiMaggio, but I imagine they existed beforehand. But I'm going to say 1965. The electric drip was invented in the 50s, no. but it wasn't widely available to consumers until 1972 when Mr. Coffee introduced the first one. And if I remember correctly, it's because Joe DiMaggio pushed it across the country. What an odd choice for a coffee maker sponsor. He was an extremely beloved figure, and I guess they figured, well, if if he tells people it's okay, they'll flock to it. Because it was a new, weird way to make coffee. I Mm -hmm. don't think they were ready for it yet, so... He ushered them in. Well, it must have worked because by 1974, which was just two years later, half of the 10 million coffee makers sold in the U.S. were electric drip. Wow. Yeah. Effective. Speaking of inventions, are you familiar with the little valve that comes on coffee bags sometimes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so these are one-way valves, and they are designed to let CO2 out of the bag, but not to let additional oxygen in. When were those invented? Ooh, uh, 51. They were invented in 1970 by Luigi Goglio, and they were used in Europe for over a decade by the time the U.S. started using it oh, in 1982. We had to wait and make sure it was going to be okay. I guess so. So this half of the century saw a lot of great advancements like these to improve our coffee, but there were also many lows. In fact, coffee consumption for the United States peaked in what year? Coffee consumption peaked uh 76. 1946. Oh, really? Yeah. So coffee makers were scrambling, uh, and they also faced the fact that the world coffee market was volatile, uh, which affected the price, and there were a lot of ups and downs. So they had a variety of ways to cut costs. One way that companies attempted to bolster sales was by encouraging people to stop doing what to their coffee? To stop, um, I don't know, adding something to it. Adding adding sugar? I, I don't know. Uh, actually taking away something. Oh, uh, taking away they something. encouraged people to stop diluting 
their coffee. Oh, don't water it down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because if you're watering it down, you're just not buying as much. (laughs) Yeah. So the Pan American Coffee Bureau, if you sent them a dime, they would send you a brewing leaflet, which I'm sure encouraged you to use a lot of coffee in your brewing. And you also got a certificate saying that you were a member of the League of Honest Coffee Lovers. Oh, I kind of want that. Uh, <laughs> I want a little business card or an ID to carry in my wallet. Well, in 1960, Mad Magazine lampooned this uh, by having the parody, The League of Frightened Coffee Growers. <laughs> Okay. I think it's interesting that it was a big enough thing in the culture that Mad Magazine lampooned it. Well, they, they're not afraid to mine depth, so uh, they, they keep their finger on the pulse of society. Apparently they do. At the same time as coffee makers were telling people to stop diluting your coffee, what other thing were they doing to help their bottom line? I don't know, branching out with flavored coffee? That will come. Uh, but they tried to save money by diluting their own coffee. Oh, of course. <laughs> they put styrofoam peanuts in there. Some brands were selling 14-ounce packages and telling consumers that it's okay because this will brew as much coffee as a full pound, which is 16 ounces. Folgers, in fact, said that you could use a quarter less of their coffee and get the same results as the full amount of other brands. Uh, I'm suspicious. <laughs> Other brands started mixing things with their coffee. Nestle created Sunrise, which it advertised as mellowed with chicory. Ooh. General Foods made Mellow Roast, which was a mixture of coffee and, can you guess what? Uh, dandelion. Postum! Oh! You thought we were done talking about Postum. Brought it back. <laughs> uh, Hills Brothers sold High Yield Blend. And it was coffee that was superheated. And when that happens, it makes the coffee get puffy. And that allowed them to put 13 ounces in a 16-ounce can. That's, that's clever. Mm-hmm. That's clever. Companies also started using lower-quality beans. And they started including chaff to their blends, which are the skins that are blown off during roasting. Oh, wow. They're really clever. That's... Uh, clever is one word for it. insidious is another word for it. What was another way in which companies tried to cater to modern consumers? They did it by trying to sell what other product? Oh, coffee filters. That is a great guess. Uh, instant coffee. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, people really loved the convenience and the ease of instant coffee, although it must be said that what I have read suggests that instant coffee was very terrible. I can imagine the beginnings of that technology just didn't transfer very well. Like, it just, it needed a while to get caught up, probably. Yes. And it was popular despite that. Uh, I would assume that it was popular because even non-instant coffee was terrible. So it didn't matter that instant coffee was also terrible. It was convenient. (laughs) It all tastes like garbage. Exactly. What percentage of coffee sold was instant in 1952? 52. Let's say 40%. Not quite that much. Uh, In 1952, it was 17%. Oh, wow. But that is still almost one out of every five coffee sales. Yeah, that's... That's pretty good. One of the great things about instant coffee was it also led to the introduction of vending machines. 
for coffee. Oh, Can you tell me what year the first coffee vending machine was put out? So I'm wanting to think, I'm probably imagining this, but I feel like I saw this on Mad Men, so 64? 47. Oh, 47. It was called Quick Cafe, but they did become extremely popular. In 1951, there were over 9,000 coffee vending machines. So they went from one in 1947 to 9,000 over four years later, or four years later. By 1955, how many were there? Uh, run, run those numbers back again sure. so I have a better guess. In 1951, there were over 9,000. So, so in 1955, oh, how say, many? Let's say they went to 20,000. 60,000. Oh, 60,000. Still undercutting it. In addition to the ease of instant coffee itself, a product called Instant Preem made what part of coffee are easier? Preem. Uh, sugar? Milk. Oh, milk. It was powdered milk. I, I, I don't mean to backtrack, but I can remember seeing the... Uh, they might still be at uh, re- interstate rest areas, the coffee sh- machines where it drops the cup and then pours in coffee. Oh, yeah. Me too. I, I can remember seeing those growing up. But I, I might have been a while. I think they finally might have been phased out. It's interesting you mention that because there were uh, there was a joint campaign amongst coffee makers to encourage U.S. motorists to stop every two hours and get coffee. Get a cup oh, of coffee there you go. for your safety. Of course, yes, <laughs> for your safety. Buy more of our product. How convenient. They're only concerned about you. Yes. <laughs> Although I have to admit, when we are on road trips, that is my mo. Uh, that, yes, we have to get coffee every time we get gas. Yes, so exactly. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not every two hours, but definitely several times. When was the first freeze-dried instant coffee introduced? Freeze-dried instant. Uh, oh, let's say 67. Ooh, really close. 64. Ah. This is when General Foods introduced Maxim. Which I think is a salacious name for coffee. (laughs) Maxim. (laughs) But I guess not at the time. At the time, it probably just sounded like manly and tough. It was freeze-dried rather than sprayed-dried. Folgers was a competing brand, and they did not have the money to create the facilities to freeze-dry coffee. So they figured out a way to take their instant powder and make it sort of adhere to itself, which created clumps that made it look like regular coffee, uh, regular coffee grounds, mm. and they advertised it as newer than freeze-dried. Uh, newer, newer, newer than freeze <laughs> Oh, they should have just stopped. They should have just stayed in their lane. I mean, technically, it's... you could do anything to your product and say, it's the newest thing. We put yes. glue in our coffee. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no one's doing it like this. <laughs> For a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Another kind of coffee that continued to flourish to meet the needs of the public was what? Uh, another type of coffee. Uh, espresso? We Just like oh. flavored coffee, we will get to espresso, okay. but right now we are going to talk decaf. Decaf, okay. Just like the first half of the century, health claims continued to dog caffeine in the second half of the 20th century. In 1963, a study came out suggesting a link between coffee and heart disease. In 1964, Naval Reserve flight surgeon Dr. D.R. Hune claimed Navy pilots sometimes complained that drinking coffee gave their hearts what? 
palpitations? Flip flops. Flip <laughs> flip flops. Yes. <laughs> what? That is the scientific term. Oh, I understand if you are not medical enough to understand. Flip flops. Okay. <laughs> What 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 is what does it mean for a heart to flip flop? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a nineteen sixty six article in Science Digest claimed that caffeine is a poison because it does what? Uh overstimulates the person. Because it hurts you if you oh. put it directly on your brain. Well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it said Quote, an infinitesimal amount applied directly to your brain would send your body into uncontrollable convulsions. Well, yeah, it's same like saying couches are dangerous because if one drops from a cliff, it'll kill you. Like, that's... Oh, I think that there are a great deal of things that if you put it directly on your brain, yeah, probably... I mean, that's... Wow, that... Gosh. Uh, the author of that article also argued that coffee caused stomach ulcers, coronary thrombosis, throat and stomach cancer, and irritability. However, he did see that coffee had some good qualities. He said that it could help with which two health conditions? Uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to say vision and uh, what would also be be ridiculous uh, vision and cholesterol. <laughs> there you go. Migraines. Migraines. Which okay. I can attest is true. Uh, yeah. And asthma. Asthma, okay. Which I looked up, and apparently that is true as well. I want to know if those other claims, if it was like, our research shows that coffee causes this problem, but it's like, if you read the fine print, it's like, if you consume five gallons every five minutes or something like something yeah. ridiculous like that. Yeah, I, I think some of them are like that. And some of them also saw a connection. But that doesn't mean or I guess I should say a correlation. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that coffee was the cause. So, well, this was not the end. In 1971, Harvard researcher Philip Cole suggested that coffee might be connected to bladder cancer. Ooh. In 72 and 73, Herschel Jick of Boston University linked coffee to heart disease. In 1979, Michael Jacobson, who worked for the Center for Science and the Public Interest, petitioned the FDA to do what? Uh put a Surgeon General warning on coffee? Yes. Hey, hey there you go. The labels would read, caffeine may cause birth defects. Uh. The FDA, as we know, did not put a label on it, but they did put out a warning. The uh, person responsible for this, Sanford Miller of the FDA, well, I guess he wasn't responsible for it, but he worked for the FDA at the time and he had some say-so in the decision, said... We're not saying caffeine is unsafe. We're just not saying it is safe. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a great non-announcement. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think that pregnant people should consume coffee, that that's healthy? Uh, I imagine it comes down to caffeine. And I, I could see like a lot of caffeine possibly having an issue. But I guess it would just be within whatever you know medical science says about the consumption of caffeine mm -hmm. while pregnant. 
I looked this up and found that people who are pregnant can safely drink one to two cups a day. Oh, okay. Yeah. I also looked up some of the other health claims made. So these are all claims made during the 80s about the health or non-health of drinking coffee. Tell me which ones you think are true and which ones are bunk. Okay. Coffee causes pancreatic cancer. Uh, false. It is false. Okay. Coffee causes breast lumps. Uh, let's say true. It's false. Oh, okay. Coffee causes heart arrhythmia. Uh, I'm going to say true. It goes a little both ways. It is false unless you drink more than four to five cups a day. Oh, so that's the limit. Coffee causes high cholesterol, which you mentioned cholesterol earlier. I'm thinking no. It does. Oh, um, okay. Maybe. <laughs> Based on what we know today, uh, there is... Coffee does not contain cholesterol in and of itself, but it contains a compound that slows our elimination or our breakdown of cholesterol. I can't describe it better. I am not a scientist. Okay. Um, but that could lead to higher levels of cholesterol. Okay. Yeah. Throughout the 80s, coffee became associated with how many diseases and disorders? Oh, gosh. 73. Over 100. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it was up there. My favorite is something called caffeinism. Okay. This was listed in the 1980 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which most people oh, wow. know as the DSM. Is that still a diagnosis in the DSM today? I want to say no. It's not. Okay. But the DSM-5 does list caffeine withdrawal and caffeine intoxication. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. By the mid-80s, what percentage of coffee sold was decaf? Uh, by the 80s? Mid-80s. Mid-80s. I'm going to say 60%. Not that much, uh, um, but it was 25%, which uh, is a quarter of all coffee sold, which is no surprise given all of the health claims that were being put out at the time about caffeine and the dangers of drinking coffee. Yeah. Which brand of decaf was so well-known that restaurants listed it by name instead of saying decaf coffee? Sanka. Yeah, hey, Sanka. Yeah. Others started making their own decaffeinated coffees as well. When Tinco produced its own decaf coffee, what did they do with the extracted caffeine? Uh, sold it to the government. Interesting and <laughs> ominous. <laughs> they put it into one of their other products. Do you know what product? Uh, let's see, uh, probably some type of, uh, cola, mm -hmm. RC cola. Coca-Cola. Oh, Coca-Cola. Yeah. But always not smooth sailing for decaf because they became the subject of health concerns as well. A 1975 study suggested that there was a connection between the solvent, I'm going to butcher this, trichloroethylene. Okay. TCE. TCE. That there is a connection between TCE and cancer in rats. However, General Foods argued that the amount of TCE used in the study was equal to the amount present in how many cups of decaf coffee? Oh, like 325. 50 million. 50 million. <laughs> so, listeners, if you happen to drink 50 million cups of decaf coffee all at once, you could be susceptible, so... Yes. <laughs> moderate moderate your intake there. Yes. Don't drink 50 million cups don't, of coffee. Don't drink 50. Although, you know, that's just rats. <laughs> so they don't know that it does that to humans, just saying. I, I'd like to know if the researcher just 
messed up or if they were like, ah, this is this is a rat's portion or something. It, it may have been a study sponsored by someone who had an interest. That's true, yeah. In keeping sales of decaf down. Um, because I know that the coffee industry itself at that time was sponsoring its own studies. So I think it may have been biased in some way. Yeah. Although I do not know. But health cares were not the only problem that coffee was going through. What was another issue coffee faced in the second half of the 20th century? Uh, let's see. Unfair labor practices. That is something we'll get into. Um, so that is definitely one. Another is the youth. The youth. Oh, <laughs> the youth. Them kids weren't drinking coffee. We got to make coffee cool and hip. Exactly. Yes. Uh, during the mid-century, the younger generation, they just were not into it. And the theory was that it was not cool. They associated coffee with authority figures, uh, with adults, with people who were like working in office jobs and businesses and stuff like that. Uh, so they just weren't into it. This wasn't helped by what slogan, which was coined in 1952? Uh, slogan? Well... Uh... I say slogan, but it's really a saying. It's sort oh, of saying. a phrase or a term that we use related to coffee and business. Uh, I don't know. Read the newspaper with coffee. Uh, I don't know. Coffee break. Coffee. Okay, coffee break. The Pan American Coffee Bureau coined this term in 1952, and shortly after its inception, coffee breaks went from something that just didn't exist to a practice instituted by 80% of U.S. employers. Nice, and we can thank, probably thank unions for that. Yes, uh, so it definitely helped their adult sales, but I think it further alienated... Yeah young people by just reinforcing that this is an old person's drink. Well, I mean, I can remember growing up and viewing coffee as like an adult drink. I know mm -hmm. that sounds weird, but uh, not that it was alcohol in it, but just that that's because you know, go on scout scout trips and the adults would always have coffee. Uh, I don't I don't know that I would have been turned down if I tried to get a cup of it, but I just it always seemed that's that's what you, that's what you drink when you're an adult. That's that's the adult drink. For me, that just made it seem cool. Like I wanted to do it because adults did it. <laughs> my mom would let me dip my cookies in her coffee. Cause I well I I'm trying to remember when I started drinking coffee. I think it was long after I started working. Uh, I don't know. Maybe by the time I turned thirty. Yeah. I don't remember when we first got the coffee maker. I can't quite and I would remember. Take coffee to work with me. Yep. Well, if young people were not drinking coffee, what were they choosing to drink instead? Soda. Yes, they were. Yeah. In 1950, the cover of Time magazine showed the red Coca-Cola logo holding a bottle of Coke up to Earth's mouth. Oh God, that's <laughs> terrifying. Oh God. <laughs> Around the same time, John McKiernan, who was president of the National Coffee Association, said, and I don't know if I can get through this without laughing, today the Pied Piper is one giant Coke bottle, and his limbs are formed of soft drink and beer cans, strung so loosely that he makes a lot of noise as he walks through the marketplace with our youth flocking after him. I love to imagine a very stern-looking older man delivering this like a very serious thing. Because that is a 
crazy description. Honestly, if he said today the Pied Piper is one giant cola bottle, <laughs> I would be like, well, okay, that is an apt metaphor. But he kept going. But it's like, and his limbs. <laughs> They're soft drinks. They're beer cans. They clatter. And the pancreas is this, and the kidneys are this. <laughs> exactly. His just kept going. He should have stopped while he was ahead. In 1956, Judy Gregg, who worked for Gilbert Youth Research, told coffee businesses that they needed to start looking more heavily into selling to 15 to 19-year-olds. 15-to-19-year-olds, I'm just going to leave that in, since that group would increase by 45% over the next decade. And, of course, she was right. She was seeing the influx of the baby boom generation. Got to get them while they're young. She urged them to start copying the sales tactics of soft drinks who were already catering successfully to that demographic. She suggested that who should be sipping coffee on television to get the young people interested. I guess any teenage character or anything. Uh, one uh, specific person who oh, is really hot. The Fonz. This is 1956. Oh, 1956. <laughs> uh, let's see. Shoot, I can't think of who in 56. I don't know. Buddy Holly. Elvis. Elvis, okay. Elvis should be sipping coffee on television. <laughs> Now, to their credit, coffee companies did try, but they faced a lot of barriers. Uh, They tried to advertise in teen magazines, but what kept them from doing so? Uh, I guess the soda lobby maybe pushed them out, or... Magazines just wouldn't let them do it. Oh, okay. uh, Because coffee was thought of as unsuitable for teenagers. Yeah. However, interestingly, Seventeen Magazine did relent and allowed them to include a pamphlet in their magazine called How to Make a Good Cup of Coffee, and it was aimed at future housewives. Okay. And I wonder if they said, well, that's okay, because they're not saying drink coffee as a teenager. They're saying, when you're grown up and you're a wife, here's how you make coffee. I could see that. You see that, too. So what else did they try to cater to young people? Tell me whether you think the following is true or false, something they really did. Teen gatherings with coffee and donuts called Teen Mates. Yes, please. I want yes. that to be true. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Sponsoring the Olympic Games. Oh, they had, yeah. No, they oh, didn't. Oh, they didn't. Mug Mates, which <laughs> encouraged adolescents to decorate their own coffee mugs. Yeah, I get on board with that. Yes, yes. that is something they did. But uh, these were not very successful because they were by and large just really clean cut. Uh, conservative traditional affairs and teenagers were not into it. Yeah, it was you gotta more make it like punk rock. You gotta exactly. See, I like to imagine. You mentioned earlier they were going to adopt the practices of soda, so I'm imagining like soda commercials, but replaced with coffee. So like the kids are at the beach and they run over instead of a cooler, it's a big uh, carafe of hot coffee. <laughs> oh and, gosh! And or they're uh, they're I don't know skateboarding at the park and and they. They go and top off with with a saucer and mug. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Maxwell House, Code Red. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that really segues into what I want to talk about next, which is uh, their coffee company's ongoing attempts to keep coffee cool. Even though baby boomers who they were targeting decades before did grow up to, by and large, be coffee drinkers, so they won in the end, 
They wanted to focus on this new generation of young people and keep coffee hip. One of the ways they did this was through a 1983 Maxwell House campaign where they used stand-up comedians. Oh, gosh. Who did they use in this campaign? Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, that would have been excellent. Steve Martin. No. Uh, All of these are great guesses. Jack Benny. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, what's the deal with coffee? You do such a great impression that I actually sent you a little bit of his bit for the coffee commercial. So we're going to have a little bit of hypnotic history theater. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I'll do my worst Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. What is the saucer for? What? My mother says, that's why you put the cup on. I thought that's what the table was for. I guess it's in case someone pulls the table out from under the coffee. You just go, nice try, pal. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) This aired one time. (laughs) (laughs) We we need to bring this up. Uh, Anyone that's in the uh, interview industry... Because, you know, Jerry, rightly so, likes to mention how popular the Seinfeld show was and how successful it was. We should also be like, yeah, but how'd that coffee run go? How'd that, how'd that coffee <laughs> ad go for you? There was also an ad campaign called Coffee Achievers. This was put out in 1984 by the National Coffee Association and featured celebrities who they said were part of the new coffee generation. New co- oh god, coffee for the next generation. I was thinking, what what was it called again? Coffee Cause, achievers. Because co- I was envisioning some type of like stamp collecting book, and like every <laughs> you, you run down to Mister Donut and get a cup of coffee, get a stamp, and after so many stamps, you get something. Or it'd be like a uh, Joe Camel bucks or points. Mm. So like you'd eventually get like a big Folgers jacket or something, <laughs> but far less ethically questionable. Yeah. Far, yeah. <laughs> Which of the following people or groups was not part of this campaign? David Bowie, Hart, Electric Light Orchestra. Uh, I'm going to say Electric Light Orchestra. It's a trick. They were all oh, included. No. Jeff Lynn, why? <laughs> you can actually look this up on YouTube, I and I see, encourage you to do so. I could see David Bowie being under the influence of drugs and <laughs> going like, yeah, sure, why not? But I'm, I'm really disappointed in Jeff Lynn. <laughs> My favorite part of this ad is actually not the people involved, but it's the line that they use. Coffee lets you calm yourself down. Coffee gives you the time to dream it. Then you're ready to do it. What is it? I, yeah, what, life? <laughs> I don't, what, gives you the time to dream it. Then you're ready to do your, it. Your life's goals are... I don't know. That's, that's it reminds weird. me of the la- previous episode, Coffee Part 1, where we talked about the ads for MJB Coffee that just said, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> and that, like, why what? We don't why? know. We don't know. But you need to figure it out. And you can figure it out with our coffee. <laughs> there was also something... I don't think I mentioned this last time. On Postum ads, all the Postum ads at the bottom would say, there's a reason. <laughs> there's... <laughs> it, it's, I don't it's know. A, we need more cryptic ads, more just like <laughs> Coca-Cola. Sure. It's right. That's true, because like, I think that uh, Gen Z, they're really into absurdist that, that, that's true. humor. That just, so know, I think that they'd really dig that. Like just like uh, 30 seconds of a serene lake, and then just somebody saying, Coca-Cola. And that'd be it. Like that. Yes. That'd be it. <laughs> 
Well, despite their terrible attempts to sell coffee to young people, there was one avenue for coffee sales that they were almost completely ignoring, and that was the coffee house. So coffee houses have existed for centuries, and early in the 20th century, they saw a boom during Prohibition uh, when bars and saloons closed their door. And at the turn of the mid-century, they became meccas for cultural exchange, especially amongst young people. They were places where you could experience jazz, poetry, and after World War II, folk music. Uh, we need to bring these back. We need, this should be the new, was it third space, fourth space? <laughs> I agree. You know, it's interesting that you say third space because that is something that uh, one of Starbucks uh, founders, not the original Starbucks founder, but the person who developed it into a coffee house where you could get espresso drinks, um, I believe his name is Howard Schultz. He said that that's what he thought about Starbucks is that it was the third space. It's not work. It's not home. It is a third space where people can meet and exist. We, we need more coffee houses. Every, every community, call your city council to invest in a coffee house. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, not only is it just a great third space, but it was a place at this time in America where people could experience performers uh, who were from backgrounds that were different from their own. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So unsurprisingly, a lot of coffee houses sprang up near what? Spring up near... What types of places types had of coffee places? houses? Uh, the gambling dens. Think about the young people. Young Think people. about the children. Uh, the children. Uh, city parks. The schools. 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 College okay. campuses. Oh, college campus. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. And what group tried to take advantage of the popularity of coffee houses? Uh, Who's trying to get the, young people in their doors? The communists. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe there was some leftist activity. Oh, um, no. Although, I mean, it's a far cry to say that you lean left, so you're a communist. But <laughs> yeah. like, I, so I guess I should say radical, radical okay. political activity yeah. in certain coffee houses, um, but specifically churches. Okay. And I remember this was during the '60s, but I remember whenever I was in. Uh, my church's youth group in the 90s, we had Coffee House. Okay. I, I can remember there, that was sort of, of all the churches I went to, there was always a giant coffee maker in the fellowship hall. Uh-huh. Like, that's just a standard, like, you, green bean casserole yeah. and coffee. I even found a book about how you can create coffee houses to uh, get young people in your doors. Oh, nice. It's called The Coffee House Ministry by John Perry written in 1966, and on the inside of the cover it says, The Coffee House, a dimly lit basement hangout for beatniks, subversives, dope peddlers, and prostitutes, or the most promising and exciting venture of the contemporary church. Why not both? <laughs> Why not all of the above? Oh, coffee houses were also popular uh, in military towns. Uh, okay, these yeah. were known as GI coffee houses, and they largely started with a man called Fred Gardner. He had patronized some bars that he felt served watered, oh, watered down overpriced drinks and decided after visiting San Francisco and experiencing the great coffee making that was going on there 
to set up coffee houses in army towns. The first one was set up in 1967 in Columbia, South Carolina, and it flourished to over two dozen uh, coffee houses across the country awesome. just over the next few years. They often had entertainment organized by what celebrity? Uh, Think, mm, consider that they are sort of uh, liberal GI coffee houses. What celebrity Uh, might do some stuff? I don't know. I got nothing. Jane Fonda. Jane, okay. Okay, Jane Fonda, Mm -hmm. yeah. She put on shows featuring Donald Sutherland country Joe McDonald and Dick Gregory. Uh, They were described as being a sort of political vaudeville. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. They often attracted many anti-military GIs, unsurprisingly. And also unsurprisingly, this raised government eyebrows. And they were put on the FBI watch list. Well, the government started investigating coffee houses and what justification did they use? Probably a Sedition Act or Espionage Act. That they were serving drugs. Oh, serving drugs. There you go. Gardner recalls, they invariably asked what we were putting in the coffee. I was taken in by the state law enforcement division one night and told by an agent that he could taste drugs in it. He was absolutely convinced it was spiked. It wasn't, of course. It was just high-quality beans, well-roasted <laughs> and properly brewed. No, I, I, I don't, I, I can't speak from experience, but I feel like if you have drugs, you're not going to put them in coffee. Like, just, <laughs> it would, it would, it's not going to improve either thing. Like, I don't know gonna, what they thought you could put in coffee I, that would be recreational. Yeah, I just, yeah, I... I don't know, maybe drops LSD? Maybe, maybe. that's true. Because I, I don't know. I just don't know a lot about drugs, but what I do know is I can't think of any that you ingest that would be for fun. Yeah. But LSD is a good guess. But apparently, no, it was just fine, fine coffee, high-quality really beans. Coffee. That's all you're tasting. Uh, coffee houses were also the focus of other authorities, congressmen, Richard Icord, who was the chairman of the House Committee on Internal Security, warned that they were dens of radical leftist activity and underground newspapers. There you go. Authorities tried to shut down coffee houses through intimidation and legal maneuvering. Some were burned down by arsonists, and some were targeted by the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, well, good to get them involved. Yeah. It's just wild. But as much as they were associated with dangerous ideas, coffee houses were probably popular for another reason, and that's because they served a particular kind of drink. Not coffee, I guess. Uh, Coffee-related drink? Coffee-related. The Frappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) Espresso. Espresso. Yeah. Um, By the mid-century, there were advances with the design of the espresso machine, and that led to a boom in Italian coffee bars after World War II and the revival of small coffee houses. People were also interested in making their own espresso at home. And so this led some people to sell stovetop steam pressure machines, which sounds dangerous to me. Yeah, that, that seems... Well, I guess it'd be the same principle as a mocha pot, just... Maybe. A little bit more complicated. Well, you have to have pressure. Yeah. So, I don't know. 
There was a coffee roaster uh, in New York who made a special blend specifically for home espresso machines, and women's magazines printed recipes for espresso-based dr- drinks. So you want to hear some of them? Yeah, let's see how complicated okay. they are. Cafe Borgia. This was equal parts espresso and hot chocolate topped with whipped cream and orange peel. You had me with the orange peel and... Uh, in that... Isn't that kind of a mocha when you do hot chocolate with it? Kind of, I guess. I think it sounds delicious, and I like the orange peel. Hmm. Cafe Anisette Royale. Espresso with anisette, which is an anise liquor, topped with whipped cream. Always thrown in the whipped cream. (laughs) I think this one sounds kind of gross, because I think it would taste like licorice. Because that's what anise tastes like. Yeah. And I just, I don't think I'd I'd, be into that. I'd be okay with that. What about Cafe Brulot? Espresso with spice. I don't know what kind of spice. Spice. It just said spice. Espresso with spice and fruit peels. Again, don't know what kind of fruit. Maybe cinnamon. Flamed with brandy. All right. We're setting it on fire. (laughs) Awesome. I would like to set something on fire. I don't know if I'd like to drink it, but I would like to lay it on fire. Along with espresso, specialty coffee in general was flourishing because there were a lot of baby boomers who had hitchhiked through Europe or been in the military there, and they learned about espresso, specialty coffee shops, and cafes. So there was a movement to bring good coffee from Europe over to America. And one of the people that did this was actually a European. He was a Dutch immigrant, and he founded a very famous coffee and tea shop in Berkeley, California. I'm going to just make a reference to our previous episode. Uh So previously we talked about a legend of coffee named George Washington. Yes. So this guy has to be called Abraham Lincoln. I wish. (laughs) And he somehow descended from him, too. (laughs) What is your actual guess for who this is? uh, I think you'll recognize the name. Yeah, just go ahead and... Alfred Pete. Pete's Coffee. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen that name. Yeah. He opened his shop in 1966. He said, I couldn't understand why the richest country in the world, they were drinking such poor quality coffee. Uh I can. Yeah, I can believe it, too. I can believe it. Capitalism. Yeah. As his shop's popularity grew, what problem did he face? Uh, Probably getting enough beans in. Hippies. Oh, hippies. Hippies really liked Pete's coffee. And he said, oh, my God, I was trying to build a neat store, and they were disheveled. I wanted an orderly business, and some of those guys were smelly. Oh, the hippies are the worst. (laughs) He tried removing stools from his shop, so what did the hippies do? They just sat on the floor. Yes, they did. (laughs) (laughs) He should have known better. Come on. Amateur. So around the same time, a little bit later, but not much later, there were these three guys, Jerry Baldwin, Gordon Bowker, and Zev Siegel. They were college students together. They had traveled Europe together. And by 1970, they were all in their late 20s. They became inspired by quality coffee from shops like Pete's and wanted to open their own business. Alfred Pete sold them their beans. He even allowed them to copy his store design. What shop did they found? Dunkin' Donuts. Starbucks. Oh, Starbucks. Where did the name Starbucks come from? Oh, gosh. Uh, A pet's name. Uh, It is a character in Moby Dick. Oh, okay. 
They said they didn't want to use their names because, according to Baldwin, that sounded too much like a law firm. <laughs> but they did want to use some kind of a surname, and they thought S was a strong letter to begin with. <laughs> so they just brainstormed names, and they eventually came upon Starbuck. Other names suggested included Steamers and Starbo. Starbo would be okay. Steamers might no. be... No. <laughs> nah, nah. But Star- Starbucks, that works. How much was Starbucks' initial rent? $80 a month. $137 oh, a month, okay. which, adjusting for inflation, is $1,030 a month today, which is still insane. That, that Downtown is, Seattle. That is, ooh, that is hefty. Renting. Oh, I don't think it's hefty at all. That, well, you got to make... Do you think you could rent a store space for $1,000 a month in Seattle? Not, no. No. I think that's crazy. It is. While people were opening places like Pete's and Starbucks and others, the big brands somehow didn't catch on that this was the type of approach they needed to do to stay relevant. According to the president of the Special Coffee Association of America, Donald Schoenholt, he says big brands thought specialty coffee was a fad, like Blue Jello, and that it would go away. Like Blue Jello? That's <laughs> the one he goes to? <laughs> you know, Blue Jello. You, know, you never see it these days, so I guess he was right. Yeah, it's true. Jello in general, I think, had its day. And is, I mean, it's still sold. I don't know who's buying it. What kinds of things did coffee makers, the big coffee makers, do to compete? So they didn't really give in to doing what specialty coffee makers were doing, but they said, we'll do our own thing. So which of the following are true? They made flavored coffees. Uh, true. True. In 1972, General Foods was one of the first by introducing their international line of flavored instant coffee. I remember seeing those little cans. Mm -hmm. A very iconic imagery. They sold aerosol coffee. Oh, that's, I don't want that to be true, but it, probably is it's true oh they sold coffee mixed with soda oh they yeah they had to have done that yes it was a coca-cola frozen coffee concentrate i bet that was disgusting (laughs) they marketed cold drinks uh yes yes um these included chococino and nescafe's mocha cooler and capio they copied the royal family uh, no. This one's true as uh, well. A&P's 8 o'clock Royal Gourmet Bean Coffee copied its packaging from H.R. Higgins Limited, which was a British coffee provider to the royal family. <laughs> they said, we only steal from the best. <laughs> I didn't make that up. They really I, did say that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that'd be that effective. Like, how many people in the States know the coffee the royal family Well, I don't necessarily think it's because you'll see it and go, oh, that's like what the royal family has. I think they're hoping it looks elegant enough to make it seem classy. They're like, well, we don't have to do specialty coffee. We'll just make our coffee look classy. Yeah. Yeah. By selling beans, whole beans. Did they do that? Uh, Yes. Yes, they did. It was a little late. It was about the mid-80s before large brands started selling whole beans in supermarkets. But this was uh, the start of those displays you see that are gravity feed. Okay. And they have the grinder. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing that growing up at the A&P. 
they stole this idea from specialty regional coffee sellers who were already doing it. Yeah. Um, but that's probably when a lot of people started seeing it was when the big people started the big people. The big pe- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, the big giants. You know the big people. <laughs> the big people. <laughs> <laughs> when the big brands started doing it in the mid eighties, was probably when a lot of people started experiencing it. Uh, what about focusing on the quality of their beans? Uh, somebody should do that. I would like to think they were doing that. I hate to say that this is a blanket false, but in general, they relied a lot more on gimmicks than sourcing really high-quality beans. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, I think that unlike specialty roasters who were very into doing that, they felt that maybe there wouldn't be the kind of return on investment they wanted. That would be my guess. Probably, yeah. What about opening coffee shops of their own? Uh, yes. No, and that is to their detriment. Um, Howard Schultz of Starbucks says if they had begun to sell specialty coffee early on, they could have wiped us out. And it's true. Starbucks was a little startup at one point, and there were other coffee brands who were over 100 years old, but they didn't get into the game correctly. They relied a lot more on gimmicks than actually investing in specialty coffee. Yeah. So let's talk a little about Starbucks, because, you know, it has a little bit of a place in coffee history, just a little bit. (laughs) Starbucks was started by Howard Schultz. He worked uh, for Starbucks when they were just a storefront selling whole beans and supplies. And he attended an international houseware show in Italy. And there was a person there who was working as a barista preparing drinks for people, and he called it Great Theater. And he wanted to make his own place like that in America. So in April of 1986, he created Il Journal, which was an espresso bar. And within six months, it served how many people per day? Oh, I'm going to say 300. A thousand. Ooh, a thousand. Wow, that poor barista. Yeah, but even though he was copying what the Italians did, there were some changes. Italians typically drank diluted drinks like lattes and cappuccinos only in the morning, but Americans wanted them throughout the day. We didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> Another difference was adding chairs, because Italians typically drank espresso while standing, but Americans wanted to sit down. I, I stand by, beside that. I, I, you I stand like by sit. sitting. I stand by sitting. <laughs> I stand up for sitting down. Uh. Uh, he also bowed to customer pressure about the music in his coffee house. He uh, had to change it to jazz because customers complained when he played what kind of music? Rock music? Opera. Opera. Ooh, yeah, no, yeah. I Uh, agree. I I mean, I feel like even somebody that doesn't like jazz music would agree that, like, a coffee house needs instrumental jazz music. Yes. Like, that's what (laughs) needs to happen. Even, even like, crazy bebop would be fine. But opera, no, no, no. He also used Italian-style lingo, like barista. And drinks weren't small, medium, large. They were what? Oh, tall, uh, grande, and venti. Short, tall, and grande. Short, tall, and grande. I guess venti came later. Uh, Another uh, example is the double espresso with a splash of milk became a doppio macchiato. Starbucks' Don Pinod said, 
It's amazing to me that these terms have become part of the language. A few of us sat in a conference room and just made them up. I was thinking they were probably just made from whole cloth. They just just slap it together. and. I think so. Uh, it should come as no surprise that Il Journal later renamed itself to join the other Starbucks stores. So there is no Il Journal today. It's all Starbucks. And when this happened... Uh, Schultz not only changed the name, but he censored what? Uh, probably the logo. Yeah, because the original Starbucks logo is a topless mermaid, and he censored that. That's smart move. Smart I, move. I think so. But you can still get the uh, original logo if you go to the first Starbucks store. Can confirm. Yep, because we have one of those mugs. However, I would not recommend it. <laughs> it is really crowded. It is very crowded, yeah. It's very small. Um... I think if you go there, you do get the sense of what they originally were, where they were just a shop to sell whole beans and supplies, by and large. Um, It just seems like that kind of shop, but they have made it into a functioning Starbucks today uh, where you can get drinks, but it is very small, very crowded. Uh, I don't think it's worth it just to get the cup, and you can probably get on eBay and get one of those cups if it means that much to you. One of the early benefits for Starbucks employees was what? Uh, Health care. The Beanstalk Program. The Beanstalk Program. I think that's such a cute name. Yes, that is. <laughs> it was begun in 1991, and employees received stock options worth 12% of their annual base pay, and this vested in five years. So there were some people who didn't work there long enough and I guess lost their stock options. Mm, ouch. But if you worked there for a while, yeah, you got, yeah, you got something yeah. pretty awesome. Uh, I looked it up and the Beanstalk program does still exist, but I don't know what the terms are. I don't know if the terms are the same as they were then. And I also imagine that if you got Starbucks stock in 1991, you would now have a ton of money. Yeah. Whereas if you got Starbucks stock today, it's like, how much more can it rise? Yeah. It's it's probably going to stay close to what you have. It's probably flatlined. Yeah. But I I can also imagine people working there in the early days and they quit before they got to five years and now they're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) why? During the 90s, as I just alluded to, Starbucks stores proliferated throughout the nation. By the end of 1991, how many Starbucks stores do you think existed? Uh, 30,000. Uh, not, no, think much smaller. <laughs> uh, um, 1991, there were a little over 100. Okay, 100. What about 1992? Uh, 300. 165. Oh. You're thinking really grandiose. Um, yeah. 1993? Uh, 170, 200. 272. 272. And in 1994? 400. 425. Very ah, good. Okay. By the mid-90s, they were opening an average of a store every business day. Well, there's that there's that great scene in the start in uh, Simpsons where Bart's going to a mall and he decides to get a piercing and like in the background, every store is suddenly changing to a Starbucks. 
<laughs> and he finally decides, I don't know if maybe it's a tattoo. It's either a tattoo or it's a piercing. tattoo. It's I tattoo. remember that. Yeah. He, he decides on a tattoo and the guy goes, hurry up, kid, because we're about to become a Starbucks. <laughs> and the next thing you see is he's walking back home with the tattoo and a cup of Starbucks. <laughs> well, as much as Starbucks is ubiquitous today, it was really huge in the mid to late 90s. And they didn't stop at just their stores. I am going to tell you about a few products, and I want you to tell me if you think it was real. Coffee beer. Oh, yeah, probably. True. They partnered with Red Hook Ale Brewery to create double black stout. Coffee soap. Yes. False. Oh. I mean, there is coffee soap today, but Starbucks did not put out a coffee soap. Coffee ice cream. Yes. True. This was Dryer's Starbucks coffee ice cream. Carbonated coffee. Yes. Yes. I don't know why coffee brands are so obsessed with partnering with sodas, but they partnered with Pepsi to create something called Mazagran. It was not successful. What a great name. I know, it does. So well. They, They really knocked it out of the park there. What about a coffee soap opera? Oh, I want that to be true. Me too, but it's not. Oh. What about coffee music? Yeah, oh, certainly. True. Uh, Starbucks put out two CDs, Blue Note Blend and Songs of the Siren. There you go. Yeah. That reminds me of when Starbucks used to have those uh, little cardboard slips that would have a song on it. And you could, uh, I think, scan something or use a code on the card and get that song on your phone. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But I don't think they do that anymore. Hmm. Starbucks was so popular during the 90s that what news program reported on them for April Fool's Day in 1996? CNN. NPR's All Things Considered. They reported a story that said, and keep in mind this is April Fool's Day, Starbucks will soon announce their plans to build a pipeline costing more than a billion dollars. A pipeline thousands of miles long from Seattle to the East Coast with branches to Boston and New York and Washington. A pipeline that will carry freshly roasted coffee beans. (laughs) I can just imagine that that somber and on NPR today. (laughs) We'd like to report that Starbucks will be breaking ground on a new pipeline that will be delivering coffee beans throughout the country. I think that's more plausible than what I originally thought. As I was reading it, I thought that they were going to say just coffee itself. Just just mainline coffee. Just like flowing coffee. (laughs) I think beans make more sense, although that is a long way to travel. But while Starbucks was extremely popular, it was created at just the right time, there was one area of coffee sales that Starbucks was late to adopt. And this is something that you mentioned earlier, fair trade. Yes. 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 During the later decades of the 20th century, people rightly started getting concerned about the social issues connected with coffee growing and selling. One example is... Thanksgiving Coffee's Paul Katzev. In 1985, he visited Nicaragua, I can say it, which was in the middle of a civil war. He says, I was educated about the relationship between coffee and revolution. When he returned to the States, he changed his coffee slogan to not just a cup, but a just cup. I nice. thought that was really that clever. Really yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he started buying Nicaraguan coffee through Canada when Reagan banned imports from the country. 
He was also co-chair of the Specialty Coffee Association of America, and he hosted a panel about coffee and human rights where he invited a Sandinista to speak on it, a Sandinista being a person who was a socialist from Nicaragua at the time uh, who were fighting against the U.S.-funded Contra rebels. So this was pretty, I think, revolutionary of him to do that. Can you tell me what brand was boycotted in 1990 for its patronage of Salvadoran coffee? Uh, brand of coffee, Columbia, no, uh, Maxwell House. It'd be funny you start to say Colombian. Colombian, Colombian yeah. coffee Colombian. straight from El Salvador. Yes. Uh, Maxwell House? Uh, it was Folgers. Oh, Folgers. Yes, um, there was a San Francisco-based activist group called Neighbor to Neighbor. They launched a boycott, and they also worked with the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union to keep Salvadoran coffee from being unloaded in select large cities. Mm. They also started commercials encouraging people to boycott Folgers, and these commercials starred what celebrity? You will never uh, guess this. Know. Ed Asner. Ed As <laughs> wow. Was, did no one? Did no other agent pick up the phone? I don't know. In the commercials, he told viewers, "What it brews is misery and death." And the screen shows blood oozing out from under an upside-down coffee cup. Oh, wow! That's that's harsh. I know. When did Starbucks adopt fair trade products? Oh, 2011. 2000. So oh, earlier 2000. than you thought, but later than they should have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they were actually one of the focuses of people who were protesting the World Trade Center's 1999 meeting in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so it seems really coincidental that within months of being protested for fair trade, uh, they suddenly adopted out of the goodness of their own heart. Yeah, that's... So that yeah. was probably a precipitating factor, um, but I don't think that they out and out have said this. Speaking of fair trade, when was the fair trade label created? Uh, 2003. 1988. Oh, 88. Which I think shows just how late some companies came to it. Yeah. Yeah. It was first known as the Max Havilar Quality Mark which was named after an 1860 Dutch novel about the inhumane treatment of Java's coffee growers. And on that really uplifting note, <laughs> that is what we have for coffee part two, coffee in the latter half of the 20th century. Yay, coffee. As it would be with any broad topic, it was impossible to cover everything there is to know about 20th century coffee in just two episodes of the podcast. So, if you want to learn more, including details about coffee abroad, the geopolitical landscape of the coffee trade, and stories of amazing people like pioneering businesswoman Alice McDougall, who opened coffee shops throughout New York City in the early part of the century, Erna Knutson, who fought her way into male-dominated cupping rooms and went on to become an authority on the burgeoning specialty coffee market, even coining the term specialty coffee, and Chock Full of Nuts founder William Black, who used his business to promote racial equity, we recommend Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World by Mark Pendergrast. You'll find it and our other sources in the episode description. Hypnoc History is researched by me, 
Ashley Skidmore, with music and editing by the indomitable Andrew Logan Skidmore. Follow us on Instagram by searching for hypnotic.history or by clicking the link in the episode description. Until next week, listeners, peace and love.